Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, listener. Welcome to the Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and our guest today is Krista Rodriguez, currently just entered into the woods, the smash hit taking Broadway by storm. She is Cinderella and is just crushing this role. And she started out, of course, um, sort of a shot out of the cannon with the success of Spring Awakening and just has had an amazing, an amazing career thus far. And it's only just beginning. She's extremely open and very genuine in this conversation, especially about her breast cancer diagnosis and, uh, and, chemotherapy and that whole process. And and we talked about some things that I've never been able to actually ask a, a cancer survivor. So um, Krista, thank you very much for your willingness to talk about that. And of course, mild trigger warning that we do tan- talk about cancer and uh, actually miscarriages as well. So just um, know that this is a real authentic conversation. So before we get into this, find me online on Instagram and Twitter, theater underscore podcast, as always. And on TikTok at the Theater Podcast, leave a rating, leave a review wherever you're listening now. And everybody, please enjoy this wonderful, wonderful conversation with Krista Rodriguez. Our guest today made her Broadway debut in 2005 in Good Vibrations before going on to an extremely long list of Broadway credits, including the original cast of Spring Awakening and the 2015 Death West revival of the same show, the original cast of The Addams Family, the original cast of the world premiere production of Disney's Hercules, the 2007 revival of A Chorus Line, and the production of In the Heights. She made her feature film debut in the film The Virginity Hit, recently starred in Halston on Netflix, and is also known for her roles on, ready for this, Smash, Daybreak, Quantico, Younger, Inside Amy Schumer, about two dozen more that would keep us here all day. This year, she co-starred with Santino Fun Tana in the Hallmark Channel film Just One Kiss and can now be seen back on the Broadway stage as Cinderella in the star-studded production of Into the Woods that just can't stop getting extended. Krista Rodriguez, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. I hope that uh, that did you justice. I was cutting out like three fourths of your of your bio just to get to the yeah, talking. Yeah, that bio needs to be shorter. Anyway, I'm gonna I'm talking to somebody about that. <laughs> start, we don't need to know about all this. So. I started with the bio from uh, from Cinderella, and I was like, this doesn't even encompass half of what I know you for. So of course, like, I don't know. Yeah, word, they only give you fifty words. I know word yeah. limits suck. Uh, anyway, so yeah, you're joining us from the dressing room of of into the woods and actually that's a great that's mm-hmm. a great place to start because this show is is like coming out of covid coming out of the pandemic i feel like it's um i don't know if we're coming out but coming out of lockdown we'll say <laughs> um we're we're getting into this point where our, people were starved for art and people were craving performances and connection and community and then into the woods is one of those shows i mean like most sondheim productions but one of these shows that so many people know and have never seen or have used as audition material, but never been able to perform. And so it's got this, these multiple levels of nostalgia and connection for people. So for you being able to have now the opportunity to, 
to be Cinderella, one of the best roles in the in the production, I think, um, and star alongside so many amazing people, uh, which they will, of course, say the same about you. Um, what is what is going on for you right now, coming out of the pandemic, coming out of lockdown, and and being kind of thrust back on stage in such a well received show right now? Yeah, it's really interesting because you know the lockdown happened and it hit the theater community so hard, harder than a lot of other industries. And I was fortunate enough to be working on Halston when it shut down. So I had a job to go back to relatively quickly when things started opening up again. We, we started shooting that again in um, September of 2020. Um, and, you know, the rest of the theater community just sat and waited. And so I think it was it was something where we all had to come up with what else we might do. It's, it's the, it's the final scene of a chorus line. You can't dance anymore. What would you do mm. if today were the day that you had to stop doing it? And that day came for all of us. And so I think a lot of people went through many versions of this is the most important thing to me. I need to be back on stage to, wow, this time with my family is invaluable. And I don't know that I can put myself through the rigors of being a performer to New York is not a sustainable living anymore. We should go somewhere else. You know, people really had to envision their lives without it. So I envisioned my life without it. And it felt like I was at a time when I could sort of let it go where I thought, you know, I have these other things and the living is so difficult. It is, you know, being on Broadway is very hard and being a theater actor, being on Broadway, being not on Broadway is difficult as a theater actor, you know? So um, I had sort of put it to bed and said, when the right thing comes along, I, I hope something will be there for me. And then things started coming back. And, and so it wasn't until around like middle of this year that I got that. I want to go back. I want to be back in on Broadway and it's back and it's, it's safe and it's, um, it's pleasing people and it's generating, uh, it's regenerating the city that we love. And I just thought, I want to be a part of that. And this came along and, and it just sort of, I won't say plopped in my lap, but, you know, came out of nowhere. I didn't expect it. And so it was just very, um, it's a, it's a really, it's a great joy. And this production is so revered and it also like somebody brought this up the other day that the first production came out when the AIDS crisis was sort of ongoing mm. and it, it became a beacon of um, how people can band together during a crisis and who behaves how and, and who, you know, no one is alone. And, uh, and then the second, the revival that happened was right after 9-11. And then for this one to come right after the lockdown, the show just keeps, not purposefully, just keeps showing up when people resonate with it really strongly of like banding together to um, in, in a time of crisis and what that means. Well, what's what's the ultimate kind of takeaway then for you? That's it's really interesting. I didn't realize the timing of of the revivals and even the original production. But so yeah. it, it, it it's come out. I guess that well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Speak to what I was saying about like why people revere it so much and why yes. I love it is because it just happened to show up at these places when people were craving comfort. So mm -hmm. being in the show now, being able to perform it, I mean, is this the first time you've been in any production of it? Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's, it's actually the city center production was the first time I'd ever seen wow. it. Wow. 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 So yeah. now that you're in it and obviously like in one of the best cities of the world, arguably the best in one of the best places, like coming out of this production with this cast, with everything that's going on, right? Like, what are you taking out of the show 
personally are you taking anything on a show personally or is it just like oh yeah oh my yeah. gosh yes i mean i haven't really had a lot of experience doing sondheim either and you know you I, I, this is I, I find that it's almost more fun to perform than to watch even though i love like as much as you love watching it it's even more fun to perform because there is no end there's no bottom to it you can just dig and dig and dig and you never, the sweater never unravels, you know? And so you can just keep trying to mine information out of your characters. And as much as it can withstand a lot of um, wear and tear, it also doesn't need a lot of wear and tear. You just need to service the material. And it's like Shakespeare. And what's so great about this production, I think, and why it resonates with people is because of its concert origins, there isn't a big moving staircase. There isn't some, you know, big elaborate costume changes. We're serving the words. And Lear DeBessonet, who directed it, was so about the letting the words tell the story. So as I'm in it and getting to let the words tell the story, and because I sort of have a fresh perspective of Cinderella, I just find her to be so... I started to resonate with her immediately as I started reading the script. And she... I really, and this isn't my experience in life, but what I really found about her was that she is the first motherless child in this story. She's the first one that doesn't have anybody that, um, you know, she, she, she can connect to in that way, in that motherly way, yeah. which is why by the end, she takes in all of the other motherless people. She's got the, the little red, she has Jack, she has the baker's wife's child. She is... You has been uniquely primed through the first act to step into this role of mother at the end. And I have been really enjoying playing that role as a woman of my age and what motherhood means and through experiences of my life. And um, it's been really rewarding. That that's that's interesting. I, I was reading through um, some of the old, old blog posts on uh, chemo couture uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> where um, we'll get it. We'll get into that story too, if you're comfortable with it, with it a little bit, but of course, yeah. Um, but, but se several references uh, you put into the posts about, about being like, you just turned 30 and you're unemployed and childless and single at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like all of these, these societal pressures, uh, I guess specifically being, being a woman, right. And being a woman uh, in this culture, in this um, profession, I guess. And then having, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I guess it, Taking it back to Cinderella, it period. yeah, period, yeah. <laughs> full, full stop, right? And, yeah, yeah. So it it, I guess for for you is it um, I, uh, well, I guess well, the question is like your goals in life, right? Are you do you relate more uh, in parallel with Cinderella um, in terms of like you want the big community because I I'm 42. Uh, I'm sorry, no, I aged myself. I will be 42. <laughs> I did this all yeah. year last year. I aged myself up one year. For like eight months until I realized three weeks before my birthday that I lost a half a year <laughs> thinking I was older. No, my birthday. I was so mad at myself. My, Don't do that. Don't age yourself. My up. birthday's in a few weeks, so I've already been thinking okay, ahead. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So yeah. I will be forty-two. Um. So I have I have okay. s uh, uh, so many people. Um. Like uh, this age, right? That are that are of all different phases in life still. And New York, of course, is this great melting pot of everything, right? So I've got like 
friends who've been married and divorced twice or, and had mm-hmm. one relationship their whole life and they're still with that person mm-hmm. and people who have never been married and people who are married and don't have kids. And it's it's this giant uh, sort of smorgasbord of, of communications yes. and connections that, that I'm moving in and out of. And it's really interesting to me because when I was younger, right? When I was the the teenager, 20 something, I was like, this is the plan we're supposed to have, right? This is the... Yeah. This is the next step. And it never occurred to me not to do this and then not to do this. And But then by the time now, being almost 42, uh, you're looking back and there's no right or wrong. I mean, there is right or wrong. I mean, coming up. But like in terms of like... Sure. Uh, uh, of your own personal your journey. Your own personal and journey and how you mm-hmm. got there. And I love something you said too about like you went to college for a little bit and then ended up not finishing because you got work. And normally like college mm-hmm. takes you to work, but you already had the work. So, you, mm-hmm. like, so there's all these different ways to which you can still yes. go through, under, over, around to get, you, to get yes. to where you want to be. And I guess my roundabout way of asking like the ultimate question is like where you are in life right now um and given uh like the the journey with breast cancer and going through chemotherapy and everything and now like taking a break from performing and now you were just saying you weren't sure if you wanted to come back after the pandemic Mm -hmm. so now 2022 it's a nice even year it's divisible by multiple things that make it nice and happy in our brains um so like what made you want to come back are are you taking these new roles um, that help you get to the next place in your personal journey, or is it just what you're just looking for work? You're just looking for jobs, and you're having. Is it fun? A search for fun or a search for fulfillment? Uh, um, I. It's a search for fulfillment. I think it's also a search. There is a search for fun. I know there is nothing more fun than putting on a show with your friends. There just, there hasn't been since we were kids. If you're an actor and you did children's theater or you put in plays in your backyard or you made up dances to Janet Jackson songs, like there isn't anything more fun than pulling out the dress up clothes from the trunk and putting on a show. So you don't get that sense necessarily on television shows, uh, maybe movies. Cause you have a little more time to build like one story, but um, not as, not as much depending on who you're with and who's running it. There is no other way to put on a Broadway show than to pull out the costumes and put on a show, which again is why I think this production of into the woods is really resonating because it feels like it still feels like theater magic and, and why, you know, it's, it's this sort of non sequitur, but um uh, fan of the opera closing, you know, I, I got to go to the reopening of it and had sort of written up fan of the opera was my gateway drug. You know, it was like Annie, Beauty and the Beast, fan of the opera. I learned how to sing in front of fan of the opera when I was <laughs> six years old. And, um, and I had sort of written it off as I got older as like, um, you know, it was, it's probably cheesy. It's probably like, Oh yeah, it probably looks really like old and dusty by now. I went to the opening and thought, I was, I could not be more wrong. This is theater magic. They never, use, you know, there's no CGI. There's no LED screens. They're using what we do, sleight of hand, magic. It's like, it's truly what makes theater so beautiful. It's lit by candles half the time, you know? It's like so incredible. Um, And so that yearning is in there. So there is that fun aspect of why I wanted to come back and just like, 
you know, you can never put on a show. You can't have egos. You can't have any of that. You got to like really get in there and get your hands dirty. So I was, I was willing to do that work and I was excited to do it. As far as fulfillment, I definitely have learned through the years, you know, I've been in, in this business. I got my equity card now almost 20 years ago. been living in New York 20 years. Um, I have learned that the dreams are very micro when, when you're starting, I want to, I want to be on Broadway. Okay. Well, that's when you get that. Now what I want to, I want to be a lead on Broadway. Well, for me, it was, I was a swing. So I want to get on stage on Broadway. (laughs) Okay. Now that I've been on stage, I want to like, I want to be in the photos out front. I want to have a line. I want to, you know, do they kind of get there and then you get all these things and then you start to realize like, Oh, the dream, the dream, which when you were a kid was Broadway or being an actor that's been accomplished decades ago. So what is the dream now? And the dream is so much bigger than I ever imagined it was. And the dream of theater leads me to my bigger dream of life, which is travel and I love home design and I, as you can see behind me, I've totally tricked out my dressing room. Like, <laughs> even though no one can see it, we can't even have backstage guests. And I spent weeks putting up wallpaper. I was going to ask um, if that was actually know. wallpaper. It looks like it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's removed, but it's beautiful. It's got birds. It's birdie wallpaper. Everywhere. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's having meaningful relationships with my friends. It's, you know, um, a, a delicious meal. It's, it's all of those things all, it doesn't have, your life doesn't have to revolve around being an actor as much as being an actor can be one part that brings you fulfillment in this larger dream of, you know, maybe one day a family, maybe all of those things can, can coexist. And that's, that's sort of my long answer about that. But, but to bring it back full circle to Cinderella, what I really like about her is that part as well, which is that she starts the show asking for a prince and a ball. Really, she asks about the ball. We can, I can nerd out a long time about how Cinderella now never asks for the prince. But she asks for a dress and she asks for the ball. And she has this childlike fairy tale, like my life will be better if I'm in this situation. And by the end, ends up raising three children that of, of, uh, with a chosen family, with a, with a man who will not be her partner, who will, who will not be a romantic partner. Like, they end up living in the woods raise, on like a commune, raising a baby together. Like that's the chick I want to be. Now. <laughs> I want to be the chick who's surrounded by like-minded people who are friends who like, you know, can, can do art and give it all up and live in the, in the woods and raise a kid. Like that's so, it's so, um, it's so forward thinking of this, of this woman and of the people who wrote this woman to say the end of her story cannot be romantic, can be motherly, but not be shameful motherly. You know, it can be earthy and completely full of anything that she, or rid of anything she thought she wanted or deserved. There's so much to unpack in all of that. <laughs> yeah, I know I talked a long time. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think it's absolutely beautiful be, because part of what you said, like you're the dream, you know, you put in quotes, the dream is to be on Broadway, but now what? And yeah. I've heard, I've heard that a, like a lot, just not, not from particularly 
um, from Broadway stars or or people that are on the quest to reach the pinnacle of whatever they are on. But like once they get there, um, they have to learn to be content with their with the journey. And I always I always uh, quote Andre De Shields when he won his Tony Award a few years ago, and he said the bottom of, or the top of one mountain is the bottom of the next, right? And so you've gotten to the top of one mountain and you look around and you're like, oh, I came from there. This is a beautiful view. And then you look the other direction and there's still much more to go. But at what point does one decide that they're, that they're happy with themselves, that they're happy with their journey? That's something I, I, at my age, I, I still struggle with, right? It's like how, how everything that we've accomplished, everything that we've done with the family we have, or the, whether biological or chosen or whatnot, and the community mm-hmm. we've sur- surrounded ourselves in, at what point does it become enough? And I don't know why, maybe, maybe this is like why we are people who need people. Uh, right. <laughs> like, what, why can't it be enough? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, so, I mean, evolutionarily, we're not meant to be complicit because we would die. So, or complacent, excuse me, not complicit. We were not meant to be complacent because we would die. It would, you know, if you sat in a place that was too beautiful for too long, you would get attacked by a wild animal and that was it. So, you know, we're fighting an uphill battle with our lizard brains. But uh, if you can sort of hack the system and just try to, and I'm not saying I have, but this is the goal is to hack the system and, and learn that there's fulfillment in many, many shapes and sizes. And the people I see that are the happiest as they get older are not the ones who dedicated every last ounce to their, to acting Mm -hmm. and to, to, to a career, any career, frankly. Um, But you know, at some point you got to open up the gates to bigger dreams, different dreams. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. Do you enjoy roles that, uh, like Cinderella, where it is, um, sort of a, a different version of yourself more or less or like uh, in contrast to something like playing Liza Minnelli right you're embodying somebody else's uh, well I guess I mean she's still alive right so you can you can yeah. meet her and I was going to ask you if you have like did mm-hmm. you work with her or was she just completely out of the picture but like how do you create I guess how do you create somebody that is still living and is so iconic how do you recreate create that but then the original question is like do you enjoy being an exaggerated version of yourself like uh or a slightly different version like cinderella or embodying iconic existing sort of tropes or stars or names or whatnot yeah i mean i haven't done too much of the embodying other iconic people i mean i guess my i would say one example would be wednesday adams you know and and that that is an iconic uh um property you know that i took on for that but other than that liza was definitely the first one um i would say that like without selling myself too short most things that i do would be an exaggerated version of myself because you can't and liza was the same you can't approach anything without figuring out the not unifying feature between the two of you you wouldn't be cast in something if there wasn't something about you that that you got to extrapolate on you know, for a role. So 
my version of Cinderella is an exaggerated version of me because I'm playing it. But anybody else's version of Cinderella is not an exaggerated version of who I am. Cinderella herself is not just a, a, a part of me. I have brought me to Cinderella, which is why Cinderella seems to be like me. Um, and so I had to do that. I got to do the same with Liza because my director, Dan Minahan, was super open to and insistent on no caricature, you know, re- and especially because, you know, the show spans so many decades. And Liza, as a performer, is truly one of the most grounded, dropped in, honest, um, you know, performers I've ever seen. And so it would be doing her a disservice to copy the copies of the copies that have that have been you know created over the years. So um, all I could do was find a lifeline as to how we were alike, which was we're both scrappy theater kids. We both you know we had very similar um, you know she had a very famous upbringing, but as far as like our um, wanting to get out and start and. And the way we perform, well, how we approach performing is very similar. Acting first, um, you know, analyzing text. Um, she, I have, I only have met her one time. She wasn't, I wasn't involved with her. She, she met with Ewan, who played Halston. Um, he asked to meet with her, but I didn't want to give a burden on her of, you know, sort of having to do anything with this. So um, I didn't work with her on this particular thing, but I had met her before. And she came backstage and gave us all a note to have better diction. Like she believes in the text, she believes in the words, and I am the same. So there were things like that where I could really relate to, um, and that's how that was my way in on her. And then it was just about really. I mean, she puts her guts into everything, and all I could do was put my guts into it and hope that our guts, you know, your guts meshed. <laughs> yeah, or that they were recognizable. That my guts looked like hers at any point. Because I say this a lot, but it's like, you're not just playing Liza Minnelli, you're playing Liza Minnelli on her best day. Like, you're playing her at her peak, at her greatest performances, at her iconic roles. I mean, doing I Gotcha, nobody does that. Nobody has ever, will ever do that number like her. And I knew I wasn't going to get any close to that. So I just had to be Chris Rodriguez at her most you know, erratic and, and disgustingly beautiful. I mean, that number is just so it's raucous and, and grotesque and you can't look away. It's stunning. So I just had to, I had to tap into what that meant for me and hope that people saw the resemblance. Who would play you in, in the Krista Rodriguez story? Oh gosh. I don't know. I don't know. Try to think of like the, the, just turned 20 somethings or late teens who are on Broadway now. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's right. going to be like a TikTok star or somebody. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's all there is. Now. Right. 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 Um, yeah. So you grew up in Orange County, right? In California. Yeah. And you were saying that Phantom and Annie and there was something, uh, yeah, I get Beauty, Beauty and the Beast. Beast. Yeah. That were like your gateway drugs. Um, mm-hmm. So you came out at a young age as a dancer, went back and started performing. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. I started dancing because it was what was accessible to me at that time. And then I went to New York when I was 13. I saw eight shows in eight days. And I was like watching it, realizing that I could take all the dance lessons in the world, but if I don't have the acting foundation, it won't mean anything. So I went back and started doing acting and voice and 
and you know the dancing sort of fell by the wayside. <laughs> well, how how old are you? you and fell in love with that. I was thirteen. So thir- thirteen and had the wherewithal to to, I guess, say like, yeah, I need to be a triple threat instead of a single threat. So. Yeah. And wow, I guess, yeah. Kelly. And triple threat. And also that, because like the roles that I was responding to were the ones that did all of it. Mm. So that was part of it, but also really to make that distinction of that it was performance based. It's, it's, it's still all textual base or mute, you know, it's, it's telling the story. And that's, I teach now as much, like, you know, as often as I can. And I, people always want to know what I wish I would have learned at that age. And it's that you're telling a story. Doesn't matter how high you're singing the note. It's not it's the, the perform. It's not a performance. It's never a performance. It's it's actually the the arc of the story, which is why when I'm approaching Cinderella, I'm going from the beginning to the end, and I'm using text only text music where it's helping me like inform something and what I know about what those things bring up in me. You know, so I, I realized that early. But it takes a long time to get secure enough in yourself to rely on that exclusively. I love in theater and uh, in this community in general how much of a family each cast becomes, mm-hmm. right? And and I was just thinking about this. Um, I just flew back. I was on a flight a couple days ago, and I just ended up uh, watching the um, the HBO documentary on the the fifteen year reunion of Spring, oh, Spring Awakening. Awakening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. And I, it's not the first time I'd seen it, but for whatever reason, it hit me differently this this time as I was watching it and just watching the amount of of admiration and love and respect that you and everyone else have ha- still have for each other. And like you still have the group chat and you're still in communication. And this is literally 15 years later. And I guess coming out of of spring awakening like the original cast right um mm-hmm. that was such a time especially for uh, for people like I Jonathan and Leah were actually teenagers and I I'm not I can't do the math real quick and how mm-hmm. old were you I was 21, so were 21. right so, 22. so you were still you were past some of the I was one of the oldest yeah you're one of, you're one yeah. of the oldest and still like so you knew what all your body parts did um but it's still like it, looking back now, 21, 22, it's still like, what am I doing with myself? And to go through that, such a unique show talking about so many serious things with such a young cast, does that show particularly mm-hmm. stand out in, in a different way? Spring Awakening stand out differently than, you know, like a, a Adam's Family is a completely different show. And in the Heights is yes. completely like, but I feel like Spring Awakening for whatever reason, the original yeah. cast, you guys are bonded for life. Well, yes, but also the revival cast is bonded for mm-hmm. life. The, the, the re- revival cast, I will say, is actually even more my family than, than the first one because I went through that while I was going to cancer. Mm. Also, they were a lot of those people were already my friends. I mean, I'm in, I was in the revival because of Andy Mantis and Michael Arden, who, had, who were my family already at that point. So, you know, you were you are putting on a show you have loved that that made an indelible mark on you early on again through one of the most like intense times of your life and you're weaving in this story through that i mean that 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 formed me in a different way i i have been so lucky i can't, i don't know how lucky i got to be able to let this show change my life twice is just 
and now three times because of the revival and how the way we got to have that concert and this documentary and to be reconnected with a lot of those people again who you know we kept in touch with some more than others and to meet them again as an adult has been so special so um, that show no matter where I encounter it reaches into my guts and twists it around and makes me a different person I mean really shakes me up into a different person so the first one was really impactful because we were young. I had already been on Broadway. I had done Good Vibrations, mm-hmm. this the notorious flop. I knew what the worst version of Broadway could be. And all of a sudden, I was in the best version of Broadway. And I was very aware of it the whole time. Um, whereas if you're a teenager and you're doing, you're doing your SATs on Saturday and missing prom because you've got a show and you're commuting in from, you know, upstate or not upstate, but you know, donkers or whatever to come to your show and your parents are still around and you're trying to, you know, you feel like you're an adult, you're making money, you're talking about your bodies, you're doing all these things, but you're not like that. That's a tricky. I think that's why the reunion got, got to everybody because they, they had the perspective to appreciate it in a way they couldn't before. I had a certain perspective to appreciate it already then. So I think, but maybe more to answer your question is what, what I, what resonated with me the most about that show. And maybe I think to bring it back to into the woods as well, people's gateway into that is that they want to play Jack. They want to play little red. There are so few roles for young people that aren't just swooning over, you know, boys at their locker or, you know, there, and there are just so few roles for that age anyway. So to be given something like Spring Awakening, where there's a classical text, there's actual stakes, there's something that we've been screaming about inside that we get to scream about outside, that that never happens. That doesn't happen. I mean, there's maybe even Rent, who would be its like closest predecessor, were adults. Mm-hmm. There is nothing that people of that age can tap into like that show can. And that's just, I mean... I hope I answered. Question, you did. I, no, I'm just trying. I'm just trying to think if there's anything. You're right. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I could kind of compare it to. But but yeah, yeah. like I mean, there were shows that tried, and there, there's like you know, Runaways or the Me Nobody Knows, all these sort of classic kind of like old school kids high school kind of shows. But th- they didn't really leave that that lasting impression that this one. Yeah, did. yeah. I mean, Steven Sater is just a brilliant writer. I mean, do, yeah. did you did he yeah. ever did Again. he ever tell you his story of like when he was in a full body cast for months because he like had to jump off jump out of a burning building? Heard about it? Yes, yeah. I didn't know it very well, but right, yeah. like, and that's what got him into mythology. Was he he yeah. he was literally on a on like a spit roast. He was hanging, yeah. and and he would turn the pages using a, a pencil eraser with a pencil stuck in his mouth. Like the the guy, like he had to live like a bubble boy. Yeah. It was incredible. Like I just love totally. how that got channeled in. Um, but you had mentioned too. I didn't realize that the revival of Spring Awakening is when you're going through the the chemotherapy. I thought mm-hmm. that you radiate. Yeah, I had. Yeah, so I I finished chemo, and when we we so basically. The, the short uh, is tried version of the story is that they had done the, the show, the Deaf West production out in LA at Inner City Arts, which was a small black box theater. And I was just a patron. I was a supporter. I was so thrilled 
because I had been nervous since 2006 about who was going to revive Spring Awakening. And when Michael told me he was going to do it with Deaf West, I was like, oh, the only way to do it. And so I was just a big supporter of it. And essentially, the girl who played Ilsa in that production was Lauren Patton. And she they were basically just doing another production of Spring Awakening a couple miles away for two weeks. And Lauren couldn't do it because she was on Broadway and Fun Home. And they said, we need somebody who can, who either know Spring Awakening or know sign language because we don't have enough time to teach somebody both. <laughs> and I had my, and I, get, I have a text from Andy, what's your chemo schedule? And I sent him my schedule. Why? And he's like, we're kind of thinking, would you be interested in playing Ilsa again? And I was like, that is like someone asked me to play Annie. I was 30 years old. You know, you never, never, never think you're going to go back to Spring Awakening. I was too old when I did it the first time, quote, 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 you know? So I was like, yeah, Ilsa's the best role I've ever played. I'll go back in a heartbeat. My chemo ended on, I think it was like April 24th. And we started rehearsals April 25th. Wow. We rehearsed for two weeks. I did the production. I finished the production. I had my surgery the next day. And while I was recovering from my surgery, they called and said, this production is going to move to Broadway. And if you can make it work, we'd love to have you. I was in LA because that's where we did the show. And that's where I was doing my treatment. We moved my doctors to New York and I did radiation every morning before rehearsal. And my last radiation was our first preview. Holy crap, Krista. Like that is, you are a machine. That's. Well, it was, it was, it had to be done. Like I I couldn't have survived without it. I mean, I I truly think like it, it just, it gave me somewhere to be. It gave me a family to go to a show that I love, a role that I could bring new perspective to with a language that I had never spoken that I could learn. It was, it was, it was imperative. Wow. Wow. So how old were you when you got the diagnosis? You were, you just turned 30, I think. I was 30. Yeah. And I I, I guess, well, what is it sort of, I guess it's always unexpected, but there's like hereditary markers, right? No hereditary. No, it was completely out of the Wow. Completely a shock. Wow. 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 So like, I mean, are you okay sort of walking through, leading up to it because i, I i've uh, fortunately yeah. knock on wood like i'm i recognize the privilege that my family there's no cancer in my family i've been mm-hmm. fine like i don't mm-hmm. know what signs are i don't i'm very curious as to like what people experience going le- leading up to something like this because um mauricio martinez right he had testicular cancer several times and he was like one day i just started mm-hmm. peeing blood and i was like whoa yeah. i hope that doesn't happen blood is yeah. bad <laughs> Blood is how I found it too. Blood's bad. Blood's where, that's when everyone started paying attention, basically. <laughs> well, so what, what was going so, on? Yeah. Yeah. You, you just, you get, for me, what happened was I had a lump. Um, it was a mass that I couldn't really detect. It felt sort of wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And I was 25 at the time. I went to my doctor. They, you know, felt around. They asked, if you have family history of breast cancer? No. 25 well we can give you an ultrasound so i go to the ultrasound and they're sort of looking around it they're kind of stopping over this one area for a while kind of looking at it the technician goes into the other room and brings the doctor in and she's like i'm seeing this thing here and the doctor goes how old are you 25 do you have any family history of breast cancer no okay then you're mm-hmm. fine so it's a lot of that every year it's that every year going to my gynecologist getting a getting in the an exam 
a little eyebrows, but maybe maybe we'll do an ultrasound. Ultrasound is dismissed because of no markers. Um, and then five years go by and it gets it's kind of bigger and sort of odd. And, and it's kind of written off as dense breast tissue or um, cysts, you yeah. know. Uh, and then blood, blood started to come out of my nipple. Um, so just a tiny little bit. And that's when I was like, that doesn't feel normal. I had just gotten a dog and I thought maybe she had scratched my chest. So I ignored it for a little bit, but then it came back. And that's when I went to the doctor and that's when everyone went, oh, <laughs> well, let's check this. Well, like, Why, why so, didn't they do a biopsy before that? You can't, I mean, this whole, the whole, I mean, we could go into this whole thing, but it's a, it's a tug of war always in the medical field between like not wanting to order unwanted tests, not wanting to expose yourself to extra radiation if you don't need it at a young age and missing huge diagnoses, you know? And, um, and also just, you know, mammograms aren't even covered by your insurance. If you don't have a history of breast cancer, a mammogram is not covered by insurance until you're 40 years wow. old. Wow. I did not so, know that. Yeah. Because if you don't have, if you have a history, if you have BRCA, if your mother died, you can start going earlier, but even 35 is pushing it for mammograms. So I had one ever only mammogram and, and it was inconclusive. The only thing that really found it was the biopsy and an MRI, which again, nobody's going to pay. The insurance is not going to pay for you to get an MRI, even though MRI is the most sort of. That's going to that's gonna find it. An MRI, you won't miss it. So I got the biopsy. They found, they realized that it, what kind it was. And they assumed, they were like, we don't know how big this thing is, but we think it's pretty wow. big because the, the weight, the way with which it's growing, it's a slow grower. And we think it's been there a while. And when they did the, the MRI, it was, it was this big. The whole thing was eight centimeters by it's six like a centimeters. Baseball. Yeah, wow. it was my entire breast. Wow, that's why they couldn't find it in things. It was the entire and the lump that we were feeling was like a cyst on top of a huge tumor. Holy crap! Oh wow! Oh, yeah. the body's shitty. Okay, wow. I know. <laughs> well, my body, you know, I, I it gave me the good. Guys, so I'm, uh, I'm happy. About that. Why did you decide to to go public with not only the diagnosis but like your journey through radiation? Yeah, I didn't. Ultimately, I had the opposite response. I wasn't going to tell anybody. I wasn't going to, you know. One of the things was we, because my tumor was a certain kind, they'd been having some success in Europe with doing only hormone treatment for it. So they were like, we'd like to see if we can avoid doing chemo for you. So let's try this hormone thing. So I had a few months where I hadn't started chemo yet. And I wasn't going to lose my hair and nothing about me was going to change. And so I was like, I'm just going to not tell anybody. And Nobody will be the wiser and I'll keep working. And because I had to have health insurance mm. because I needed to keep working. So I needed to keep working. So that was, I did a movie. I did, you know, a couple other things just to be like, nobody knows. I'm just going to keep moving. And uh, I didn't want to be a burden. Women especially don't want to be, you know, liability. Plus, anytime you start mentioning hormones or breasts, everyone just like, you know, they freak out. So it was just like, I'm just going to stay, you know, quiet about it. 
And then it wasn't until, well, when I found out that I had to do chemo and I knew that I was going to change and people, I wasn't something that I could sort of hide anymore. That was one kind of tip off that I was going to do, but it really was, in fact, I, I was in LA. I was, you know, completely, I think I was even wearing a wig at that point. I might've started chemo already and people didn't know. Um, and it was January and February and somebody came to me at a party and was like, and it gave me this like really sympathetic hand on my leg and was like, how's your pilot season going? <laughs> and I was like, uh, uh, I, like I realized this is now lying. Like me not telling people is lying. A. And when you go through something like this, you're like, nothing stays inside that doesn't belong inside. Everything comes out. And B, I can't even have a real conversation with this person about what's going on in my life. They think that pilot season is the most important thing in my life right now. I could not be further removed from pilot season. I don't even know what's happening. And I would rather have a real conversation with somebody about what's really going on in my life and make them understand than talk about pilots at a party. I mean, it just felt like this disgusting display of how we just don't know what the hell we're doing. And so that's when I was like, okay, I need to tell people what's going on. And it wasn't even really going to be that personal. It was like the, the blog was intended, as you mentioned, it's called Kima Couture, intended to be sort of a cheeky fashion blog and something that made me feel better and a way to like put a little bow literally on like, what I was going through. And as it sort of opened up to more people, people started sharing their stories and started becoming more interested in mine. I started realizing that this was just a way that I, this was my activism was to, was to be as loud as possible so that other people could, could be quiet if they wanted to, or to bring awareness to them. Uh, and sort of an underserved market of the breast cancer community, which is women of my age. And frankly, women who are older who who um, also are more likely to get breast cancer were not being treated with the respect and dignity that younger women do get treated of because of ageism and um, and that sort of thing. So I, I started to realize the undercurrent of like, if I could get better service for myself, I could spread that to more people. I feel like that's, it's a, an unfortunately all too common occurrence to say, oh, once I started talking about my experiences, everybody else came out too, because they were yes. afraid to talk about it. I don't understand why, right. why we're so afraid to talk about these sort of things. And it's when my friends started, friends, as I was aging with my friends, and they all started to have children, all of a sudden, there were a surprising number of people, my friends, close friends that were having miscarriages. And mm -hmm. yep. Outside of the circle, I just don't understand why we can't, as a society, acknowledge that there is so much more that goes on with people's lives. Because I feel like we'd be more sympathetic. We'd be more understanding. Yeah. We'd, be more we'd just flat out be kinder to people going, going. Well, especially when it's something that, that quote unquote attacks your body. There is a, and this is why I don't use words like cancer survivor. I don't use words like beat cancer. Uh, I think that those things super put in a hierarchy of that I somehow did something better than somebody who, who didn't survive it. Um, and that I don't, 
I don't subscribe to at all. When you're in it, you know it's indeterminate. It picks who it wants and takes. It has nothing to do with you. But and that's the same with miscarriages. I mean, those those are not most the majority I would say of people are not out there doing things that that this would happen for. This is a normal function of your body saying this is not viable. We have to get rid of it because we want to be ready for the Bible. And this cancer is not helpful. We need to get rid of this, you know, or these cells are not right. And so we need cancer is trying to fix something. It's not there to hurt you, really. It's there to, you know, to fix something. And then it, it goes awry. So anyway, I, I think that there's an inherent fault that gets placed in your body where you feel like this was on my watch. This is my body. This is the one body I've been given. And I slipped somehow and let this happen. And that shame is what makes people not want to talk about it, which, and also it sucks to make women trot out their trauma for the help of other people. (laughs) If you want to be quiet about your miscarriage, you're allowed, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it, you don't have to blast it on social media to be an activist there there are people who can and i felt like i could there i felt like i could take on whatever this was so that if somebody wanted to remain quiet they could quietly go to my blog and learn how to do something and feel better about it and if somebody wants to quietly go through their miscarriage my god let them you know but if you can speak out you know but that's it shouldn't have to take women ripping themselves open to other yeah. people for people to have sympathy. Well, that's for them why I, that's lives. why I think the arts are incredibly important, especially theater, because it allows yeah. other people to watch and, and experience without actually going through it or relate or whatnot. And I mean, yeah. even taking it back to the spring awakening, the documentary of like the cast hearing, like I was going to kill myself until I saw the show tonight. Mm-hmm. And then that made me realize mm-hmm. that I, I shouldn't do that. That was great. Or mm-hmm. uh, the way that Beetlejuice currently is helping especially young people get through death mm-hmm. of parents and trauma. And, and you hear so many people, I hear stories all the time and read people, read things on social media of people just bonding to these stories because even though they're completely made up and fictional stories, they're, they are 100% real to the people watching them because the people watching oh, yeah. them need that connection. I think it's beautiful. Right. It's absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. So anyway, thank you for, okay. thank you for sharing. Okay. I think, um, I, I hope other people will, will find some solace in this and yeah, it's, it, <laughs> I like what you said. It's like, it's indeterminate. Yeah. So just do, do your best. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. Okay, so I've got three questions to wrap up every episode. The first one, just very simply, is what motivates you? Mm, Is that simple? Um, Let's see, what motivates me? (laughs) Um, I do have a desire to to grow. I do. And 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 so I think my motivations are, are personal growth a lot of the times. They are now. They used to be other things, but I think now they are, will this stretch me and you know make me feel like i didn't leave anything on the table anymore what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path Mm -hmm. you're telling a story of course um 
your lower half is as important as your upper half when you're performing. Get into those, you know, your legs, your pelvis, your chakras, like get in there because that's where the story is. That's where the story is. Story's not really in your face, actually. It's, it's all coming from your, your diaphragm and out your face. Um, that's sort of abstract, but if you took a class with me, you would understand. <laughs> and also, um, plug. a happier, more well-rounded person is going to be a better actor. Mm. Do not put everything, every ounce of what you have into this. Go on the vacation, you know, open the bottle of wine. Don't save it. Use the face cream. Like, don't say that. Like, use the stuff. It's like, do the things, learn how to be a person, and then all of your roles will be more interesting than if you're trying to strive for perfection. I'm going to go to the proverbial gym. Don't skip leg day and eat healthy when you get there. Don't skip leg yeah. day. I did yeah. leg day today. <laughs> and, and eat healthy when you get home after your workout. Okay, last question yeah. then. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? I mean, is it a great production of that thing? Because, <laughs> you know, you got to have the right production of any well, show. Well, you can specify the but production I, if you'd like to. Well, I don't know. I mean, you're talking about like a show that has existed already. Like I'm going back to a a, a specific day and time to do a production or just the show as I love it. A show it. as you love it. Because, if well, if you can get a specific to like a day and time, then good on you. No one's yeah. been able to do that yet. No, no. But I mean, like, you know, like, okay, so I love Spring Awakening. Like, I think that would be the one I could return to and love. But, um, you know, do I, I want to see like an original production of Cabaret and I want to see, you know, like, um, I want to be there for... I, you know, that, those kinds of historical moments. Opening night of Phantom. So those two. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I kind of got that, the reopening of Phantom. The reason I went was because someone said to me, how often can you say you were at the opening of Phantom? And I was like, that's right. I want to be at the opening of Phantom. <laughs> it was incredible. All right. Where, so where can we connect with you online on social media? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, moderately active on Instagram. It's um, Krista underscore Rod. Um, I also um, started the design business over COVID, curated by Krista Rodriguez, which I also have an Instagram curated by KR. Um, and I'm not on Twitter. I still have a handle there, but if you're tagging me, I'm not seeing it. I got off of that toxic merry-go-round around 2016. Hmm, I wonder hmm. why. And um, <laughs> that's about it. That's where you can find me on the interwebs. You, haven't done and the, you can find me at the St. James that's Theater. That's right. Into the woods. You haven't done the Tiki Talks yet? Mm -hmm. No tiki talks. I don't think I'm a tiki talk gal. I'm not a be realer. I'm. I think I've reached the point where I don't want to learn those new tricks. I'm trying to. I'm trying to live in the woods with my children. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you can get more wonderful episodes like this one at thetheaterpodcast.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter and tiki talks. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Please leave a rating and review if you liked what you heard. Leave a rating and review even if you didn't. Why not? This has been edited by Well-Rounded Hoodlum Productions. Our music is from Jukebox the Ghost. And our conversation is from Krista Rodriguez. I didn't know your music was Jukebox Hells the Ghost. yeah. Yeah. Right. Are we off there? I love Jukebox the Ghost. I said the F word. Oh, fuck. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, stop saying okay, that. I didn't know if we're allowed to say that. Take a deep breath. Make the world a little colorful. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.